So we finished last time Isaiah 36, which brings us to Isaiah 37. You all have been hearing about Sennacherib now for months, and tonight he gets his due. In 36, which we finished last time, we had the Reb Shekha standing outside the walls of Jerusalem, trash-talking, saying that the people of Jerusalem were going to eat excrement, essentially, and that their God wouldn't be able to save them. So that takes us now to chapter 37. By the way, the Reb Shekha, who's standing outside Jerusalem, was speaking with the guy who was the chief of staff over the household. You've got sort of an administrative secretary and you've got a recorder. And those are the guys that are standing out there talking to the Reb Shekha. Let's pick it up at 3621 because it just flows right in. But they, the people of Jerusalem, but they were silent and answered not a word for the king's commandment was do not answer them. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Reb Shekha. As soon as Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of Rebshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So, obviously, we're sort of coming to the head of what all of this has been talking about up until now. A couple of things. A day where children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. The metaphor there is a woman in labor and she runs out of strength before the child is actually delivered. And of course, with medical things being the way they would have been at that time, that would probably have meant death for both the mother and the child. Obviously not a good metaphor. So uh, Hezekiah sends to Isaiah and reports what the Reb Shekha has said, and what he's asking is if God will hear what the Reb Shekha said against God and will therefore rebuke him. So that's the sense of it. So verse 5. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he can hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The sense of this, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. What that is to say is fleeing when no man pursues, fleeing in fear kind of thing. Actually, God's going to do far more than that. But from Isaiah's perspective, he's got Hezekiah bucked up. Verse 8. So now the Reb Shekha returns to the king of Assyria, not to Jerusalem. The Reb Shekhar returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. 
Now the king heard concerning Tirhakah, king of Cush, he has sent out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak Hezekiah, king of Judah. So what's going on is, you remember earlier on, Hezekiah was sending emissaries to northern Africa, trying to come up with allies against the Assyrians. So the Assyrian king is in the process of reducing the fortress cities that are north and west of Jerusalem. So you have a ring of fortress cities that the king of Assyria is in the process of reducing them. In that process, he hears a rumor that the king of Cush is going to come and help. So he sends the Reb Shekah back to speak to Hezekiah. So in verse 10 now, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered. Now, again, this is Sennacherib, who is the current king and the one on the battlefield. The Assyrian Empire has gone through a series of kings, as in normal succession, not as in they keep trying them out and rejecting them. There have been a series of kings that have built the Assyrian Empire. So what Sennacherib is saying is the Assyrian Empire, under me and my predecessors, have done all of this. In other words, he's not saying I did it all. He's saying the Assyrians have done it all, and I am the latest of the Assyrian kings, and I will continue to do what everybody else has done before me. Verse 12. Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezpah, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where has the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? This, by the way, is entirely reminiscent of Pharaoh in Egypt before the Exodus. Moses waltzes into the king's palace and says, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know this God. And furthermore, I'm not going to let this people go. So the idea that pagan kings would regard Jehovah as simply another regional pagan god is entirely rational on their part. Incorrect, but rational. All of these other kings have depended on their gods, and their gods were unable to deliver them from me. I don't see any reason why your god should be any different. In addition to which, it's trash talk. What he's obviously also trying to do is to dispirit Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem and get them to surrender without a fight. Because remember, the Assyrian Empire is up north in the Fertile Crescent around Turkey and Nineveh and Babylon, you know, that area up there. Most of what's been happening with Jehovah has been Israel and south to Egypt. And again, the king of Assyria is 
bragging on his own God. So he's basically saying, nobody has been able to deliver you. My gods are more powerful than yours. And it is, again, entirely rational for him to believe that any stories he may have heard of Jehovah are in the same vein. So as I say, a lot of this is trash talk and rumor and, oh, by the way, the northern kingdom who believes in the same God was delivered into my hand. What makes you think that you're going to be any different? If he couldn't save the northern kingdom, what makes you think he can save you? All those things are going into the calculus here. So we're now on 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now, I have a mental image of this. Scripture doesn't say, but I see him coming in before the altar and taking this letter, which would have probably been a scroll, and down on his hands and knees and spreading the scroll out in front of the altar while he's on his hands and knees and saying, all right, this is what I've got to deal with. I sort of get that image, if you will. So Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they are no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. But now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. In his prayer here, Hezekiah is obviously asserting that there is only one God, and the fact that the Assyrians have destroyed all these other so-called gods is irrelevant. And furthermore, he is saying to Jehovah, these guys are trash-talking you. need to come down and show them what's what. I'm going to take a digression here. This is all very straightforward. One of the things that I find interesting, and I talked about this several months ago when I did a sermon on the development of human thought to where we are today. We are primarily a logical people, and that process has taken hundreds of years to develop. And one of the things that we can understand intellectually but not emotionally is the pull of idols in that culture. I happen to be reading Judges right now, and what happens is Jehovah has no image, is invisible, except that the Holy Spirit comes down upon people when they need to slaughter a few Philistines. I guess the way to say it is intellectually he's almost like a force of nature. In other words, if you walk according to his law, then things go well in your country. And it's sort of like if you build a good roof, you're going to stay dry underneath. I mean, it's, it's almost like a mechanical thing. And the temptation is everybody there has a developed 
sense of the spiritual that is foreign to us. And they crave something tangible to worship. And so Israel, they sort of come back under God when they get in trouble and things go well for a while, but then they gradually drift back to worshiping the gods of the nations around them or the gods of the people that they failed to drive out. And one of the things we don't understand is just how strong the pull of that spiritual desire was among those people. Because our mindset is primarily rational and intellectual. Their mindset was primarily spiritual. So they have a very different understanding of the world and their place in the world than what we do. Which, by the way, I say to our loss. I am not suggesting that we are in any way better off. In fact, I don't think we are as well off as they were because we have lost to a great extent that spiritual understanding of things. The problem that they have with Jehovah is the manifestations of Jehovah are fairly rare. You have an Elijah that periodically comes in and calls down fire and so forth and everybody just straightens up and flies right for a generation and then they sort of drift back and drift away and that's what happened to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom gradually drifted away and worshipped the balls and so forth. So the idea of having battles and conflicts in the name of gods is something that would have been just absolutely normal to these folks. And to us it seems superstitious. The label that would be given to it today is superstition. And it's really hard for us to understand that it's not. It was not. It was something that was very real. All right, let's move on. So I'm in Isaiah 37, 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By the way, this virgin daughter of Zion, commentary I read says that that's a metaphor meaning unconquered. Do with that whatever you like. But anyway, it shows up lots of places in Scripture, and I finally found somebody that explained it. So the virgin daughter of Zion despises and scorns the Assyrians. And the one who has been mocked and reviled is the Holy One of Israel. So verse 24. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. So this is what Sennacherib is saying. In other words, this is is what God is saying is going on in Sennacherib's heart, which is to say, I have conquered all this stuff. I dug wells and drunk waters with the sole of my foot, the streams of Egypt. In other words, not even Egypt is able to stand against me. And of course, at that time, Egypt was 
a fading empire, but was still significant. So this is all by way of him saying in pride that I am able to conquer Israel and your God is not able to save you. 26. This now switches back to God speaking. And have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruin, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. In other words, what God is saying is, I am the one who set you up. And all of this stuff that you are doing is by my leave. 28. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in. And you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will turn you back on the way by which you came. By the way, this metaphor of putting a hook in the nose, they literally did that with captured people. They would run an iron hook through their lip or through their nose and drag them off where they wanted them to go. Verse 30. This is God speaking, by the way. And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself. And in the second year, what springs from that. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is obviously a metaphor of the year of Jubilee, where the land lies fallow for three years. And what God is saying here is, I will give you a jubilee, which is to say a release from all of this oppression that you have undergone. Verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of his god, Adramelech and Sharazar, his sons struck him down with the sword. After they had escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. So what you have is two of his sons strike him down, and a third of his sons then assumes the rulership of the, the empire. I don't know, just haven't looked at it, I, I'm sure it probably exists somewhere in some historical record, I don't know whether the two who did the deed were doing it at the behest of the one who finally became king. Don't know what the intrigue was there. But Esarhaddon obviously is the next of the kings and he does reign for a while. So the Assyrian Empire doesn't dissolve at this point. And it doesn't really dissolve until the Babylonians raise up and conquer him. 38. 
In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, This is Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, and you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. One of the things that historically happens is up until this point, Hezekiah has in fact been a good and godly king. He goes downhill in the 15 years that he has given subsequently. And by the end of his life, he is not doing nearly as well from God's perspective as he was at the time when he got sick. I have heard preachers preach on this, that God knew when Hezekiah should die so that he would die a hero. And there's a phrase, it was actually spoken of Thomas Jefferson. It is a very sad thing when the greatness departs before the man does. That's what happened to Thomas Jefferson. That's what happens to Hezekiah. The greatness departs before the man does. Jefferson, at the end of his life, was a mess. He was president of the University of Virginia, and he had to deal with student riots. Verse 7. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps by which it had declined. In other words, what he did is he cranked the day back. And this is recorded historically, and I'm sure you've all heard this. This happened in 701 B.C., and this is the point at which the calendars of every nation on earth changed from 360-day years to 365. The orbit of the Earth changed so that the year became 365 days instead of the 360 days that it had been previously. It took a while to get all the calendars straightened out, but all the calendars in the world changed about that time, and it's because of this. Verse 9. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom from day to day to bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. The poetic metaphor there is fairly obvious. Verse 14. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me. And he himself has done it. I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. In other words, he is not ready to die. 16. 
O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living he thanks you, as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. A fairly common theme in scripture, if I go down to the pit, who's going to praise you? Again, it's a good prayer, I'm not, not knocking it, but it shows up in the Psalms also. 20. The Lord will save me. He will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. Now Isaiah had said, let him take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also had said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? So this is in retrospect of what has just happened. 39. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed him gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a faraway country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. He's being foolish. What he's doing is he is bragging. He's bringing these foreign envoys and he's showing them all the wealth of his house by way of saying, look how great I am. And as Isaiah says, big mistake. Big mistake for two reasons. Reason number one, it's a big mistake, is God doesn't care for pride. And reason number two, it's a big mistake, is you have now given Babylon a target. They now know, or at least their successors will know, that taking Jerusalem is worth the time and the effort. And as I said earlier, when God gave him an extra 15 years, his remaining 15 years were nothing to write home about. He didn't do good. And this is the beginning of it. His attitude has changed. And I think you can see that change in attitude in that before he's king and he's worried about the kingdom. Now, after this bout that he had with a fatal illness, his focus is now shifted and he's really only worried about himself. 
the experience of having survived a fatal disease has changed his focus in life. He's no longer going to be a good king. He's no longer focused on his progeny. He's focused entirely on himself. And I think that's probably one of the reasons that this vignette shows up here where it does. Isaiah upbraids him for being a fool. And, of course, a hundred and some odd years later, the prophecy of Isaiah is going to come to pass and Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed and all the wealth that has been built up ever since David is going to be carried off to Babylon.